Hey, this is Alex Forbes. I'm a professional songwriter as well as a songwriting coach, and you are listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Mark Blatt, a songwriter and producer who has written songs for the Four Tops, Celine Dion, Kenny Rogers, and others. One of the hit songs that he wrote for the Four Tops is called When She Was My Girl, and it's on Bruce Springsteen's new album of cover songs. We got to talk about that. He's also created commercials for companies like Pepsi-Cola, Coca-Cola, and Pizza Hut. And I've been told that his favorite one is one that he wrote for Goldfish. That goes something like, I love the fishes because they're so delicious. And he's also recently teamed up with Trans-Siberian Orchestra vocalist Joe Sarasano. I hope I get that right. As a group called the Distant Thunder. And as you know, in the middle of this episode, like I do with all my musical guests, um, Mark and I are going to do what I call a song fest. We're going to play a handful of some of his songs and we're going to talk about them and you'll get the backstories. And nobody else does this in podcasts, I can assure you. And you also know that in every episode of the podcast, I feature one of my songs underneath the introduction and at the end. And I always try to make that song relevant somehow. Well, this one was a bit of a challenge, but I chose the song that I wrote called Gorilla from the Queen's Carnival, the album by my band Project Grand Slam. Why did I choose this? Okay, well, listen to this. Both Mark and I wrote songs about animals. He wrote a song about goldfish, and I wrote a song about gorillas. So I thought that that worked. <laughs> so Mark Blatt, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'll tell you, you know, anybody that writes songs for a living, I take my hat off to you because, you know, in a certain sense, it's a thankless task. You're, you're working by yourself. You're all alone. You got to find somebody, if it's not you, that's going to record that song. You've been a songwriter for a long time. When did you do the work that I talked about for the Four Tops and some of the other acts here? Okay, well, um, the Four Tops, let's just, we can start with that, because that's a good one to start with. There you go. I have a, a songwriting partner named Larry Gottlieb, who is a Grammy winner. Yeah, I call him my, my brother from another mother. Yeah. <laughs> He's just a brilliant guy. He wrote Believe Me, Baby, I Lied, which was the number one record for um, Trisha Yearwood. And um, that's a weird story because I was watching the Country Music Awards and I heard this song and I just thought, oh, my God, this is a great song. And I heard, you know, and I said to my wife, Larry's down in Nashville. Let's give him a call. So I called him. I said, I'm listening to this song, man. It's a great song. And he goes, I wrote it. Uh, so you didn't even know that he wrote that one. huh? <laughs> I had no idea. I just called him because I heard the song. I thought it was great. I knew he was in Nashville writing. I was like, God, somebody's doing some great work down there, man. 
Well, Larry goes, it's me. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, the four tops, we, um, we were signed to MCA Music as songwriters. And this goes back to 1978. And back then we were getting paid $300 a week each, which was a fortune. Wow. My rent was $175, right? There you go. And before that, I was superintendent of a building. I was a road to man. You name it, I played in, you know, in nightclubs, you know, the whole deal. Perfect background for a musician, huh? Right. So when this deal came on the table, we took it. And um, anyway, so one day Larry, Larry says to me, you know, I got this idea for a song. And he said, uh, this is how it goes. And he 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 went, you know, the guitar part. And then he said, can you go rest? Boom, boom, boom on the bass, right? And I said, I can't. I don't have that rhythm. <laughs> <laughs> he said, never mind. So he sang me this song. And I just, I, I was blown away. I said, Larry, this is a great song. Let's record it, you know. And so we found a, a very handsome singer, an R&B singer, and we went up to uh, Connecticut. Do you know who Kashif is? Kashif produced You Give Good Love and uh, George Benson, Dionne Warwick. Anyway, then he was an unknown. So we And he was a friend. He was like a 22-year-old kid. And we took him up to Connecticut and we cut the tracks. And this guy came in and sang it great. We didn't have an instrumental. So I said, Larry, I'm going to go. Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> okay, you know. So, so uh, then what happens is uh, a guy named Mike Milius is our representative at MCA, and he plays for Dave Wolford, who is the producer, and he he's a friend and a fantastic producer arranger, just brilliant. So uh, Dave says, "Well, you know, I I I I like the song, but I." don't like the bridge. Can you turn the bridge into a chorus? Okay. So Mike calls me and Larry and he says, can you guys change the bridge into a chorus? And Larry goes, it's perfect. I'm not going to change a thing. <laughs> That's what Larry says to me. You got to know this guy, you know, he's like, he's a contrarian, right? I said, okay, Dave. All right. <laughs> I'll let you know, we'll get back to you. So, uh, he called me and, um, you know, I felt sort of guilty. I hadn't really worked on it because I didn't really want to feel like I was betraying Larry, you know, to change his song, you know. <laughs> but on the other hand, I felt I have an obligation here to do what our client wants, you know. So Dave calls and he says, well, have you got a bridge? And I said, I do. I do. Go to the four chord. <laughs> and I sang, when she was my girl, it was laughter and loving it. Now go to the one chord my world every day now go back to the four chord when she was my girl oh, what joy she would bring go to the two minor well i lost everything and now go to the five chord play a five chord in the bass you know play but play a four chord in your right hand you're doing this on the spur of the moment with him or you had this all worked out yeah well i had thought a lot about it but i was really procrastinating because i love larry <laughs> I didn't really want to offend him. All right. So he didn't know that you were doing this. You went behind his back. Well, he so told, to I to, no, 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 no. I, I told him I was going to do it. And he said, well, you know, just go ahead. You know, I'm not going to do it. All right. He washed his hands of the whole thing. That's what oh, you're yeah. saying. That's Larry. I mean, you got to know this guy. He's just, a, he's brilliant. He's a genius. So somehow this got to the four tops. Is that the end of the story here? That's what happened. And, my, and 
Dave Wolfer took it to the four tops and Charlie Koppelman had a label. Charlie Koppelman was a record company executive. Yeah. And they said it sounded like a hit. And so, um, you know, they put it out as a single and it just took off. Well, you know, normally I, I, I put this a little bit further back in the interview, but we're talking about this song, so we may as well play a little bit of it now. So right underneath our voice as we're talking now, we're playing a little bit of When She Was My Girl. This is the Four Tops version. Levi Stubbs is doing uh, that, that main vocal. how much I care when she was Tell me a little bit about, did you work with Levi? Did you see them recording the song? Yes, I did. And that was one of the thrills of a lifetime because probably like you, I grew up listening to them. Absolutely. And one of the first songs where I said to my dad, can you pull over? I just want to hear this song was Reach Out. It was so good that I could not believe anybody wrote it. <laughs> 100%. They were a fantastic group. And his voice was, you know, one of those iconic voices of the 60s. Yeah. No question about it. And a sweet, sweet man. All right. So they recorded the song and they, this was a little bit towards the back end of their career, right? Because this came out when? In the 80s? Yeah, this was their last hit. We hung out and they were just, just sweet gentlemen. They couldn't be nicer. I mean, they were just, they were the best. So I'm just curious, back then, now they weren't recording from Motown. This was a separate label, right? Casablanca. Casablanca, okay. I don't think they're still around, are they? Casablanca? I don't think so, no. Yeah, probably not. But anyway, I'm just curious, back then, was the group simply told this was the record you're going to record? Or did they have a, you know, a say-so in what was going to be recorded by them? How did that work? I'm not really sure, you know, generally there's a consensus between the, as you know, the producer and the band. Um, so I'm not sure how that, how that worked. You know, at the time, I have to say, Stevie Nicks was recording one of our songs called Shiver. It's a song that's never been a hit, but it's been recorded more times than any other song. And maybe because the chorus is so complicated, the chorus is shiver, 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 shiver. Uh oh, oh, that's the chorus. <laughs> and very profound lyrics. I like that. <laughs> oh man! So we were thinking, 
you know, well, Jimmy Iovine was in the studio with Stevie Nicks. Jimmy Iovine now is a super, you know, he has that headphone company with Dr. Dre. Beats, I think it's called. Anyway, so we were just thinking about that. And we're because the the four tops thing was like you know how often does a group from the '60s come back in the '80s and have a hit right? Yep. So we didn't really get involved. I just just to hang out with them was I consider one of the greatest days of my life. Actually, well, that's very cool to have written a song that they recorded. I mean, and it was their last big hit, as you said. Yeah, yeah. They All recorded right. two other songs of ours. I think they recorded a song called Sad Hearts, which I thought was a smash. I just loved it, but it never got any traction. But they just killed it. it, it it's kind of like, um, oh gosh, I'm trying to think Johnny Mathis type of song. It's just, right. it's just very emotional. You know, as a songwriter and producer, sometimes you have that record in your hands and you, you kind of think it's going to be a number one, but you don't know for sure. You don't have that reaction yet from the masses. I remember years and years ago, I interviewed a guy named Felix Papillardi. Oh, man, he's a monster. He's a great. Yes, he was in Mountain. Yeah. And he was a producer. He produced Cream's second album, Disraeli Gears. Wow. And I remember him saying to me that he held the master in his hand before it went out publicly. And he said, I knew I had a number one record in my hands. And there's not too many guys that have that feeling. And it turns out to be right. He was right. Oh, it I never right. have that feeling. It's a Hail Mary for me. It's, it's like... always a Hail Mary. I understand completely. Hi, everybody. This is your host, Robert Miller. I'm pleased to tell you that I've got a new album coming out soon called Bobby M. and the Paisley Parade. It features 10 new songs, plus guest appearances by John Helliwell of Supertramp, Tony Carey of Rainbow, and international sitar sensation Deobrat Mishra. The album has a definite 60s vibe. And the theme of the record is all about relationships and love. It may just be my best album ever. The reviewers agree. Indie Shark calls it Album of the Year. Big Celebrity Buzz says it's one of the great rock sets of the year. And Pop Icon calls it an adventure that keeps us on the edge of our seats. How about that? And for me... The icing on the cake is the praise that the album has received from world-class musicians like Steve Hackett of Genesis, Gary Puckett of The Union Gap, Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul & Mary, Jim McCarty of The Yardbirds, and David Liebert of The Happenings. I'm going to release the 10 songs on the album in a novel way in five special episodes of this podcast featuring two songs in each one starting after the new year. So be on the lookout for these special episodes of Bobby M and the Paisley Parade. And if you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to this podcast 
And please sign up for our weekly emails, previewing each episode and much more. The links are all in the show notes. I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking. When you let yourself go. All right. I want to switch gears here. You had this career in commercials, which interests me because, you know, the whole jingle era in commercials was a special era for musicians and for songwriters. I'm sure you were part of that era. And you wrote that song for Goldfish that they told me about. I love the fishes because they're so delicious. I actually found that spot. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But tell me a little bit about that era for you and that particular ad spot. Well, the era, this is really critical. I was in a studio working with four people now who are kind of legendary. One is Robbie Condor. He plays piano for Streisand. And at the time, he was touring with Eric Clapton. Jimmy Braylauer, who plays the drums on 400 gold records, uh, including Higher Love. A guy named Jay Rifkin, who at that time was an engineer, but he wrote part of The Lion King. And Larry. Larry Gottlieb. And Larry and I had written a song called Sharpshooter for Laura Branigan. Doug Morris was a a big fan of ours. He was president of Atlantic Records and and now he's chairman of the board of Universal. But so he would ask us to write songs for artists. And we wrote this song called Sharpshooter. And, you know, there was a guy named Eddie O'Loughlin who had Plateau Records, Salt and Pepper. And I would always go over to his office to say, is this any good, Eddie? Because I just thought he had the best ears in the business, you know. And he said, man, that's a hit. So we sent it to Doug and uh, Laura called me and she sang it on the phone and she sounded great. And I said to Doug, I would love to produce this. And he says, you can't. So anyway, uh, he calls to play me the record when I'm in this session. This, the, the session we were doing is called Street Justice. I ran past a truck, unloading in the alley. I ran as fast as my legs could carry me. I ran through the streets of no man's land. Burnt out place where tenements stand. Gotta meet the punk on a battlefront. Gotta beat the punk street justice. Gotta meet the punk on a battlefront. Gotta beat the punk street justice. I was not prepared for the things I saw when I opened up. It's a classic hip-hop record from 1981. I get all kinds of emails from people all over the world who want to re-record it. And a lot of college kids now know it. You know, it's just one of those things. So um, anyway, we were recording this song and Doug calls and he plays me the Laura Brannigan version. And it sucked. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, you know, what are you going to say? It's Doug Morris, right? Hey, Doug, I love it, right? (laughs) It's great. Thank you. Hang up the phone, you know. 
and I look like I'm going to cry. And uh, Robbie Condor comes over to me and he says, you know, Mark, he said, man, you're a great writer. You know, I've been working with Paul Simon, Eric Clapton. This is what he said to me. I'm just quoting. I'm not saying it's true. And, you know, you write as good as they do. So I'm going to tell you, I'm going to introduce you to someone and you're going to have a lot of fun and make tons of money. That's what Robbie said. And he introduced me to the woman who is now my wife. Ah. At the time, she had a small music house. They did tons of what you call um, background music for commercials. Right. They were very, very successful. And uh, Steve Chapin was one of the partners, Harry's brother. Okay. And her husband, Rich. And and uh, anyway, they they broke that company up, and she was looking for somebody, and she heard my reel. And, of course, Robbie introduced us, which was great help. And um, she asked me if I wanted to come work with her, you know. And I was so impressed by her comportment, her creativity. She's an incredible producer. I said, sure. And at that time, we were the office was just three people, and it was in a five-story walk-up. Three years later, we had three floors on Fifth Avenue. It just took off. The first thing that really took off was The Pride is Back, which was um, a Kenny Rogers single. And it was used for um, to promote the Chrysler Plymouth account for three years. And that got best music in advertising. And, you know, once you get an award, you know, it's like you're, you're you become legitimate, you know, how you walk on water. <laughs> yeah, it's like. And so for the next, I would say, seven or eight years, I you know, I was just busy all the time doing. Um, let's see. I wrote. um Take me home, good year, take me home. Joe Serrazano sang that. Take me home, good year, take me home. The Rock, the Prudential, above and beyond. The Rock, the Prudential, above and beyond. I mean, I could just go like, I, I would say there are 40 things that you would know. I was just very, very fortunate, you know. And the beauty of it was I was getting to produce stuff. And the, the other beauty of it was the budgets were basically unlimited. So, for example, I produced a Rachel Sweet record in 1981. It cost $89,000 all in. It took six months. I made $5,000. And it was, you know, you know, you produce. So, you know, like dealing with an artist is not easy. It's not easy because they're in such a precarious situation. Only 3% of the acts signed to a label make any money for the label. Yep. That means your chances are what? 97%. Pretty bad. Happen. Pretty right. bad. Right. So many labels, particularly back then, they would sign everything, throw it against the wall figuratively. And if it stuck, they would chase it. And if it fell down, that was it. Yeah. Well, you know, so you have a 3% chance. So anyway... A year later, I was producing a radio commercial through Gene's company, Look Music, and uh, the budget was $89,000 for two radio spots, and it took a day. That's a better deal. You know what I'm saying? And that's the difference. And I got paid lots and lots of money. It was, the, uh, it was used as the first 
commercial video it, for on MTV. I went to the MTV Awards. That was fun. So the thing about the thing about you know writing music for commercials is that first of all you're working with the most amazing creative people in the world. They're madmen. They're just brilliant. So there's there's that, and they appreciate what you're doing. It's like if they come up with an idea and your music enhances it, they're just like, thank you, thank you, thank you. That's not like the record business. <laughs> what are you going to do for me next, you know? And you get paid a ton of money, you know? So it was like, it's just been, I retired when I was 52 because we had such a successful career. And I, I owe it pretty much to my wife. My my wife, um, I when I wrote The Pride is Back. Say her name. You haven't mentioned her name yet. Jean Neary Look is my wife. Okay, there you go. And uh, basically what happened was there's always a competition for an account. She had the Chrysler Plymouth account. So I was writing against other writers and I wrote The Pride is Back and the the creatives picked another song. And she went up to them and she said, she got on her knees and she said, if you use The Pride is Back, it will change the way music is done in advertising. And that's what happened. It was the first commercial that sounded like a record. And after that, you know, a lot of people, you know, like, uh, what's that, that Chevy commercial? I, I mean, there were a lot of, like, great songs that came out after that for products. But that was the first one. And she's the one who really put it over. Well, there was an era, and you're talking about it now, where, you know, there were so many guys and gals out there doing jingles and commercials and the, the, the houses that were... Uh, putting this stuff out, you know, they were very, very active. I don't think it's nearly the same nowadays. Am I correct? No, I, I mentored a young guy who's working and he's really successful. But these days it's buyouts. The the way that um, when you're the way that you make money. Is one, you know, you play on the commercial and then you sing on the commercial. And every time the commercial runs nationally, you get, you get $30. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's just a ton of money. I mean, it's crazy. And and so th the thing is that, you know, it was great doing the commercials and it was also great, you know, having songs covered. But um, I wrote Hands Across America. You know, everybody holds hands and stuff like that. Uh -huh. Yeah, I wrote that. Uh, Kenny Rogers asked me to write it. He and wow. Ken Cragen called me and they said, can you write hands some, a song for us? And I said, and I really didn't want to do it because at the time we were working on the Oldsmobile account. This is not your father's Oldsmobile. I wrote that one too. Anyway, so, so, oh man, I'm losing my concentration here. Oh, anyway, so Kenny called the two Kens, Kenny Cragen and Ken Rogers. And they were like, Mark, can you write this song? And I said, I'm not really that interested. And Gene gave me this eye like, oh, yes, you are. And I was 
prevaricating. So I was like, well, why don't you get the guys who sang We Are the World? You know, there's a ton of good writers there. And they said, well, Mark, we tried them and we wouldn't be calling you. And I said, well, what was the problem? And they said, well, you know, they're artists. We gave them copy points, but they ignored them. <laughs> that's that's what I've heard that story before. Right. Yeah. They're trying to write a hit song instead of uh, doing what the account wants. Right. Well, listen, you had a great career in commercials. You've had a great career in writing songs and having them played by, covered by so many artists. Now you've got this new project, which I want you to talk about. So tell me about the project that you're doing now, The Distant Thunder. Okay, The Distant Thunder, uh, it goes back to me growing up listening to Dylan and Ian and Sylvia. Uh, the Northern Bound, Northern Bound uh, record that had um, two hits on it. Uh, you Were On My Mind, they wrote that one. And uh, there's a young boy that I know. Judy Collins had a hit with that. And then early Dylan, the um, the album with Mr. Tambourine Man. I wore those two albums out. And, you know, that was the music that really resonated with me. And as you know, once you do something and it's successful, people ask you to do that again and again and again and again. And I was feeling basically that I had never written any music that resonated with me, you know, like, you know, it goes back to I was hanging out with Bruce Springsteen at the power station when I was 31. And I was thinking, God, I just love what this guy does. And he just gives it everything he can and he it resonates for him you know the music that i've written doesn't resonate deeply enough for me well you were doing music for other people and for uh, ad accounts and the like yeah that's not going to be from your heart right it's not from my heart i mean it's from my heart it's inspired and it's fully realized but it's not resonating with me like those two uh, two records did so i said to joe I knew Joe. Joe sang Hands Across America, and he did a ton of commercials, some with us. And I knew his background. He's a hillbilly. (laughs) And so he grew up with, in the tradition of all this Americana stuff, which is what I loved. So I said, hey, man, you want to write? And he said, yeah. And I said, great. So He's he was really busy. I mean, this guy he came to New York penniless, and seven years later he had a private banker. I mean, forget it. Good for him. <laughs> he was amazing. So uh, so we wrote every Monday from eight in the morning till twelve in the afternoon for four years, and then we got these songs and we recorded them with a band. But we just kept working and working, and the project kind of faded, and. I was living four years ago, me and my wife were living in a very, very remote beach, overlooking a very, very remote beach in Nicaragua. And, um, oh, it was incredible. I was loving it. And uh, there was a civil uprising and we had to leave the country, revised by the American embassy to get out. And we just took a couple of pieces of luggage, walked across the border under machine gun guard, and wound up in Costa Rica, and we had nowhere to live, right? We didn't have any place to live. So our daughter lives down here in Charleston, near Charleston, and we moved down here. So like yourself, during the pandemic, I was looking for stuff to do, and I learned logic. 
that that uh, program that allows musicians, you know, it's like a $2 million recording studio for $200, right? And I said to Joe, Joe, I want to write some new songs and I want to revisit our old songs. And I'm going to play all the parts because I just have to tell you this as a musician, right? As great as the studio musicians in New York are, when they come to a session, they want to impress each other. And they all want to be in Steely Dan. And my songs are like for three-year-olds, you know, I mean, they're so, they're like Creedence songs, you know? And so I would be telling these incredible musicians, you know, can you play more simply? And they just would hate it. You know, they'd be like, shut up, man. You know, they're trying to one up each other, huh? Yeah. And they're passing, you know, they're doing passing tones. I'm like, keep triads, just triads, just triads, no, no, no sevenths. No. Anyway. So, um, so this way, I, I actually played all the instruments. So it's right. me. And then uh, I would, you know, I'd send the tracks up to Joe and he has a studio and he would would sing them. The thing, the thing about the album for me is that it's, it's, it's for adults. It's really for adults. It's like a James Taylor record or a Neil Young record. It speaks to complicated issues. And it speaks in an intelligent manner. For example, the first song called Healing Hand. Let me stop you right there, because I picked that song out to play during this interview, because I like that song a lot. So we're listening to it right now. It's a very dynamic song. Tell us a little bit about what you had in mind there. Well, you know, Joe and I live in New York City. And um, this was, we wrote it during the time when the Central Park Five were being pilloried, you know, by Donald Trump and all that. And I said to Joe, you know, this isn't really working. This is not going to work. And, uh, you know, let's write something. And, you know, he's a white guy from Virginia, from the hills. His grandparents came as miners from Italy. Okay. And uh, I said, okay, why don't we do this? I was born a white man in the hills of West Virginia. That's you, Joe. I dreamed I was a black man in Selma, Alabama. It was 1961. And in the early morning sun, I was marching for freedom. And you know, that's very specific to our generation, and it's historically specific. And then it goes, repair what's been broken, bring back what's been taken. The dream has been shattered, the promise forsaken. The waters are rising all over this land. Everybody's searching for a healing hand. So it, it speaks to, in an adult, like we've been through it, we've seen assassinations, and we're just looking to heal. And 
I think everybody, everybody is looking to heal on some level. I think you're right. And I agree with you that it's an adult song. It's not a bubblegum kind of thing. It's not just a little pop song. It's got a wonderful melody to it. It's got a great you know, feel to the whole thing, but it's got a message. And I am somebody as a songwriter myself that likes to write message songs. Not that you have to beat people over the head with the message, but within the context of the lyrics and within the context of the song, there's a message that's being delivered. What's wrong with that? As you said, you know, back in the day when Dylan was doing what his what he started out doing, there were messages galore. Okay. And I had uh, not, among other people, Peter Yarrow from Peter, Paul and Mary, also oh, his yeah. partner, uh, Noel Stuckey on the podcast. And we were talking about the whole era of message and protest songs and the like, which you don't find much these days because so many artists are so afraid to take a stand on anything. I've had a couple of artists say to me, well, if I take a stand on an issue, I'm going to alienate half the audience. And, you know, I don't say anything at that point, but my view is, but you, you know, you're an artist, you almost have an obligation to, to comment on social issues of the day, don't we? Well, I think one of the things that liberates somebody like me is having the money to do, say whatever you want. <laughs> right. No, I mean, that's the blessing. That's the blessing. So it doesn't matter to me if this thing's successful or not. I feel personally gratified for it. I feel like I can go to Bruce Springsteen. I can say, Bruce, listen to this album or Don Henley, listen to this album. Because I really feel like, you know, it's it's worthy. I played it down here. I met uh, Mark Byron from Hootie and the Blowfish. And we got to know each other pretty well. And uh, I played him Healing Hand. He just was, whoa, you know. So for me, that was an affirmation of what I was capable of. I had never really done what I thought I might be capable of. And as you know, you never know until you try it, you know. Well, you're in a renaissance of your career. And I like that. We have been speaking here with Mark Blatt who is a songwriter and producer extraordinaire. I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast, all the great things that you've done in your career. And I want to wish you the best with this album and with everything else that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much, Robert. It's been a joy. Absolute joy. We're going to listen now to the song that started off this podcast episode. Again, it's my song called Gorilla. I want to thank you all for listening and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.
Wow, 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 wow,